This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. We continue tonight in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7. Specifically, we will be in John chapter 7, looking at verses 32 through 52. Hear now God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go, that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and was from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, that, <clears throat> this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look. For no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word again this evening, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would, uh, through this text, know better our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has come to do for us. And may we rest confidently 
in the salvation that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we resume tonight where we left off last time in John chapter 7. So last time we saw Jesus' secret journey to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we saw how the conflict between Jesus and the leaders of the Jews had escalated. We saw that there was great division among the people at the feast concerning Jesus. Some thought that he was good. Some even suspected that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. But also this discussion of Jesus, though prevalent, it was being done in secret because the leaders of the Jews were so deeply opposed to Jesus that they would even persecute those who merely spoke a sympathetic word about him. We also saw attempts at discrediting Jesus, calling him into question because he lacked the typical proper education of his day. He hadn't gone to the right schools. He hadn't studied under the right rabbis. Sorry, would someone be able to get me up water today? I don't know if my voice is going to make it without. Um, <clears throat> Then we saw that Jesus reasserted his divinity, that he was from the Father and had come to do the Father's works. This too was questioned because the people thought they knew Jesus' origin. He was the son of Joseph and Mary and could not be the expected Messiah. So we pick up in the middle of this confrontation in verses 32 through 52 of John 7. And so we'll look at this tonight in four points. First, departure. In verses 32 through 36, Jesus reveals some of his future plans, where he is going and what that means. Second, drink in verses 37 through 39. Jesus uses an illustration about water to describe who he is and what he has come to do. And third, we see doubts in verses 40 through 44. We see again that some believe while more reasons are introduced not to believe. And fourth, we see descent in verses 45 through 52. We see among the leaders of the Jews that even at least one man is persuaded in Jesus' favor. So again, we have departure, drink, doubts, and descent. So first, we see Jesus teach concerning his departure in verses 32 through 36. We see that in light of the previous confrontation, the Pharisees and the chief priests, the leaders of the leaders of the Jews, they send officers to arrest Jesus. They've had enough. They're ready to stop this movement and silence its leader once and for all. But Jesus is undeterred. In verse 33, he continues to teach. He says, I shall be with you a little while longer. Thank you. And then I go to him who sent me. So here we see Jesus foretelling his death. As we saw before, Jesus knows at this point that his time has not yet come. He will not be given over to death until the time which God has foreordained. But here he looks forward to his time that is coming, where he will return to his father. He continues, you will seek me and not find me, for where I am, you cannot come. Now, there are a few different layers, a few different things going on in this statement that Jesus makes. First, on a surface level, Jesus is first going to death. 
But then later, after his death and after his resurrection, he will ascend to where he came from. He will return to his father. Those who are yet living, those who are in this mortal life, cannot go there. But Jesus is also speaking about the spiritual state of his opponents. As he has been clear throughout, to know him is to know God. To know the Son is to know the Father. No Jesus, no salvation. When Jesus is saying that he is going to where they cannot come, he is marking the division between those who are his people and have eternal life and eventually will go where he goes and those who do not and will not. Those who hate and oppose Jesus will ultimately not go where he has gone. They will be separated from him forever. This is a hard teaching in our world today. Many entertain the false notion that all roads lead to God. Merely being a part of some kind of religion that worships some kind of God is enough to bring salvation. Or even just being a good person is enough to bring salvation. And yet here Jesus is addressing seemingly devout Jews. They would claim to worship Yahweh. They would claim to worship the God of the Old Testament. One would think that they would at least be very close to true saving religion, right? But Jesus is rebuking them with a rebuke carrying eternal consequences. Though they might be close, it's not good enough. Even if they accept two-thirds of the Bible and worship the God described in two-thirds of the Bible, It is vain and meaningless apart from faith in Christ. To hold such religion will result in one being unable to go where Christ has gone into resurrection glory. No Jesus, no salvation. These sayings of Jesus, though, are not understood by the Jews. There is no recognition among them that There might be merit to Jesus' claims concerning his divinity and the salvation he brings. In fact, they assume here that Jesus is still speaking of earthly things. They ask among themselves what Jesus means when he says that he is going where they cannot. It seems the best answer they can come up with is, well, he'll go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. See, by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had been, in many various times and waves, been invaded, conquered, and dispersed. You might remember from Paul's ministry how he traveled all over the Mediterranean region, the Near East, and into Europe. Yet in many places, he would come to these synagogues, these Jewish communities and houses of worship. This is the dispersion. The Jews who through various historical developments, were dispersed from the promised land. So they think, well, maybe Jesus is talking about going there. He's going where the Jews might live, as he himself is a Jew, but then going there and teaching also the Greeks, teaching the Gentiles. Now, in a real and powerful way, the word of Christ will come to the Gentiles in the lands of the dispersion, But it won't be because Jesus himself, at least in body, physically is carrying it there. No, Jesus is describing here his departure from this world, first in his death and then in his ascension. Where Christ has gone, those who are his people cannot go yet, 
And those who are not his people will never go. But the people do not understand that these eternal and spiritual realities are in view. But after this teaching concerning Jesus' departure, we next see Jesus' teaching concerning drink in verses 37 through 39. We see a pivot in time. We move forward to the last day of the feast. These Jewish festivals, they weren't just single-day occasions like our holidays. They were multi-day occasions. And they would conclude on the last day with a high Sabbath, a high convocation, a particular day of worship and celebration to close out the feast. So we see now in verse 37 that we are on that day. This means that though an attempt was made in the earlier day of the feast to take and arrest Jesus, it failed. Jesus is knowledgeable and sovereign over when the time for his death has come, and it has not come. Although he drew great opposition and even an attempt on his life, it has failed for now. But Jesus here teaches a new teaching starting in the end of verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, as we've seen before, Jesus is using something common, something earthly to teach concerning his person and work and to teach concerning spiritual realities. In the previous chapter, we saw the disputation over bread. The people came to Jesus seeking more physical nourishment, but Jesus taught concerning something greater, that he is the bread of life, that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And so here Jesus illustrates his work through water, through that which is drank. Now this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. Back in chapter 4, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, he taught that he was the giver of living water, water of which one may drink and never thirst again, and become a fountain of living water unto eternal life. So this teaching, previously given in Samaria, comes back this time in Jerusalem in chapter 7. What was given before to the Samaritans now comes to the Jews. Now this shows, among other things, that Jesus' message and mission is not confined to any particular people or tribe or ethnic group, and it's not different for different peoples or tribes or ethnic groups. Jesus is living water for the Samaritans just as he is for the Jews. But here we get more details concerning this living water. Jesus says here, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now here Jesus alludes to the Old Testament, particularly some teachings in Isaiah, such as Isaiah 12.3 which says, therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So this living water is a prophesied event coming to pass in Jesus' ministry. But we get an additional clarifying detail that we didn't get when Jesus had talked about the water before. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had hinted about this before in Samaria. He talked about a day coming where his people would worship him in spirit and in truth. But here he talks more explicitly 
about how after he is glorified, after he is resurrected, and after he ascends to where the Father is, the Spirit will be poured out on those who believe in him, such that from their hearts will proceed rivers of living water, an abundance of living water that spreads out and goes out into the earth. Now remember these observations about water. First, Israel is not a place known for an abundance of water. It's surrounded by deserts. It was prone to cycles of drought and famine. You might hear that, and given how most of you work in agriculture, you can probably relate to this in some extent. There are cycles where there's more water available and cycles where there is less. But we also all know that water is essential to life. No water leads to a quick death. In a survival situation, most people can go without food for several days, even weeks, and still survive. But most would die after just a few days without water. There has to be water, and it has to be clean and fresh and available in sufficient quantities. So what is made clear for us here in this text is that after Christ's glorification, the Holy Spirit will be poured out and will be the fount of living water by which we receive life and life goes forth to the world. This is consistent with the distinctive personal properties and actions of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. In Genesis at creation, God breathed, the breath, breathed into man the breath of life. But as we talked about when we looked at that text, the Hebrew for breath or wind is the same word for spirit. From creation, the spirit has been associated with life giving. But now in the church age, it is the Holy Spirit that empowers and enables life giving gospel ministry and mission. It is by the Holy Spirit that the disciples of Jesus go from cowards at the time of his death to courageous heralds just a few weeks later. It is by the Spirit's work that the gospel goes forth to the uttermost parts of the earth, and that the word is proclaimed and heard and revealed to our hearts, and the church is built and empowered and sustained. That is the living water that Christ gives this ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. But after this invitation to drink from Jesus, we come to our third point, a new wave of doubts in verses 40 through 44. We see that some hear this word from Jesus and believe. Some hear what he has to say, and they say, truly this is the prophet. Now remember, what is in view here is the prophet that Moses described in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet to come that would be greater than Moses. Jesus is that prophet, really and truly. He is the prophet who reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Others present that day said that this is the Christ. Now many people hear Christ and they just think that's Jesus' last name. It's not. It's actually a title. It has a meaning. It means a Messiah or anointed one. When the scriptures refer to Jesus Christ, it would almost be proper to insert a the, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, because Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He is the prophet, and he is the Messiah. 
But not all share this belief. We see another doubt arise starting in the end of verse 41. It again pertains to where Jesus is from. Jesus grew up in Nazareth of Galilee. As far as anyone knows, that was his hometown. Now, to be from Nazareth in Galilee is unimpressive enough. It was the apostle Nathaniel clear back in John 1.46, who upon hearing that Jesus was from Nazareth asked, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That same sentiment is shared among some of this crowd in Jerusalem. Surely if the Messiah and the prophet is coming, he's not coming from Nazareth, is he? He's not coming from Galilee. But this is not merely to knock on Nazareth. There was a prophetic expectation that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. This was set forth in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. We've already seen doubts concerning Jesus because of his family origin. He is believed to be the natural and even illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary. But this also raises doubts on prophetic and geographic grounds. The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. The people in their unbelief, they're rendering a judgment against Jesus. But not only are they doing so in unbelief, they are doing so based on incomplete information. And how many in their unbelief render a judgment against Jesus based on incomplete information? How much of our culture today puts up a straw man of Jesus to abuse and condemn his followers? They say things like, Jesus was loving. You're not very loving because we cannot and will not affirm and support sin. Jesus helped the marginalized and oppressed when really what they're after is not the living water that Jesus offered, but some political or social agenda. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, but you all are just judgmental, again, wanting us to affirm and support sin. See, these are not accurate descriptions of Jesus that our critics offer. They act on incomplete information. They pull things out of context. They're not interested in the whole picture of the whole Christ. Jesus was loving but as God, he is also perfectly righteous and just and calls people to repentance. Jesus did help some marginalized and oppressed people, but he also once told his disciples that the poor they would always have with them. He did not come as an economic reformer, but as a savior of souls. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, but he called them to repentance, and very often they did. You could think, for instance, of Zacchaeus, that wee little man. You probably learned the song. A cheating tax collector. Jesus comes to his house, and he decides not only to stop his fraud, does Zacchaeus, but he repays it in multiples. One of the forms that unbelief takes is to claim a knowledge of Jesus that is based on incomplete or cherry-picked information. Information that does not account for the full revelation of Christ given in Scripture and illuminated by the Holy Spirit, the living water that Christ gives. 
And so many in this crowd make unbelieving judgments on Jesus based on this incomplete information. Well, he's Mary and Joseph's son. He doesn't come from supernatural origin, not knowing or desiring to know that Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. Well, he's not from Bethlehem, because they don't know and don't seem to care to know that he actually was born in Bethlehem during the census, and that he lived there until his family had to flee to Egypt. But unbelief is not merely a function of incomplete information or misunderstanding. That can be part of it, but unbelief comes from lack of this living water. Unbelief comes from the lack of the illumination of the Spirit to receive and understand God's Word. Apart from God granting the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of faith, unbelief is all there is and all there can be. And so we see, though the Spirit hasn't come in fullness and won't come in fullness until Christ is glorified, that this division that the Spirit, who is the living water, makes even here in this passage in John. Some believe, some don't. We also see in verse 44 that some still want to arrest Jesus, to take him and to silence him. But again, this does not succeed. No one lays a hand on him. He knows when his time comes. He is sovereign over when his time comes, and it has not come yet. But after departure, drink, and doubts, we come to our final point, descent, in verses 45 through 52. That's descent, D-I-S-S-E-N-T. We see that this division over Jesus is not merely a popular problem that the general crowd is wrestling with. We see that the officers, those who had been sent to arrest Jesus, come back to the Sanhedrin, the high council, the rulers of the rulers who would have originated this plot to arrest Jesus and kill him, these officers come back, much to the council's chagrin, without Jesus. And they are asked why. Well, the officers reply, No man ever spoke like this man. How does Jesus exercise his sovereignty in preventing his arrest and trial and death until the proper time? Well, part of this is in winning over the very people that seek to arrest him. Though the mission of the leadership is to kill him, we see that many, even within their own ranks, are believing what Jesus is saying. We see that among these officers. Though the officers are met with a strong rebuke, are you also deceived? begging the question, assuming that Jesus is the one deceiving and not them. And then they also ask, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. But this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. So this assumption that the council is operating on is that anyone who would side with Jesus over them must be deceived. But what they fail to recognize is they are the ones that are deceived, and they are the ones that are deceiving. They believe falsely that Jesus is a blasphemer. Why is that? It's because they trust in themselves. 
They believe in themselves. And so they must oppose Jesus with all their might as he opposes them. You see this in their continued rebuke. When they ask, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, we don't believe in him and we're right because it's us. We tell you people what to think and believe and we didn't give you this. Because we are the, author the authoritative interpreters of the law and no one else can get it right but us. This is made clear in the final part of the rebuke. They, the crowd that believes Jesus is presumed to not know the law and thus be accursed. The Pharisees are not only corrupt and self-righteous, but they claim for themselves what only belongs to God. The authority to determine and define the law and the word of God. Well, but there is one exception. Because in verse 50, we see an old friend. Nicodemus. You might remember Nicodemus, but if you don't, John, Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus by night back in John chapter 3. And John reminds you of this here in the text. Jesus taught Nicodemus there that he needed to be born again from above, that he needed to believe in Jesus for everlasting life. Well, as it turns out, Though Nicodemus did not seem all that understanding of Jesus' teaching back then, it seems to have had an impact. Because there was actually one of the Pharisees who did believe, and it was Nicodemus. Now, he can't just come out and say it, not yet. But what he does is he uses his position to sort of stall these proceedings against Jesus. He raises a very valid point. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And he has here a valid point. As Jesus called them out for previously, they have been seeking to murder Jesus. They have been seeking to take him and kill him without due process. Now, eventually, they're going to do this anyway. But Nicodemus, by reminding them of what is actually true of their law, that men are not condemned apart from witnesses and evidence, he at least slows them down for a time. He too is part of the means that Jesus uses to defer his death until the appointed time. Now the council does not like that Nicodemus confronts them in this way, but his interference, his dissent, is enough to stop the proceedings from now. They complain, they accuse Nicodemus, are you also from Galilee? Are you someone else like this troublemaker Jesus seeking to ruin everything we have built? And they render yet another unbelieving judgment based on incomplete information, saying, search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now this is a statement that is actually just factually incorrect. You might remember from last fall, the prophet Jonah he was actually from a region in Galilee, gath Hefer, as we see in 2 Kings 14.25. Now, one commentator also notes that Capernaum, the town where Jesus lived at the time in Galilee, may have also been the home of Nahum, another Old Testament prophet. 
So actually, if these guys really knew the scriptures, they would know that prophets have come from Galilee. But most of all, they are betraying their wicked motives by their wicked words and actions. So what are we to make of all of this? Well, this controversy that Jesus stirred up at the Feast of Tabernacles, we see in it once again the contrast between belief and unbelief. Unbelief is on display from those in the crowd and those on the council that despise and reject Jesus and render these wicked and erroneous and presumptuous judgments on him apart from the truth. These are the ones who lack the living water, the illuminating work of the Spirit by which they might have turned and have life. But there is another way, the way of belief. The word that Christ had offered to them had been effectual to some in the crowd. They believed that Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. This is because God enabled them to receive it. By the living water of the Spirit, their hearts and minds were opened. This was seen in Nicodemus, who by all accounts seems to have believed what Jesus taught him before, that he needed to be born again. That Jesus was, just as the serpent before in the wilderness, going to be lifted up for the sins of many as he would be in his suffering and death. That whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The word of life that Nicodemus received by the living water of the Spirit is the same word and water offered to you tonight. Unbelief leads to death and condemnation and hell. Whatever you think about Jesus that keeps you in unbelief will only serve that end. But perhaps for the first time tonight, the Spirit is moving you towards belief. You start to see that Jesus is in fact the source of life, that His words are true, and that salvation comes through Him, through His perfect life and atoning death. If that is you tonight... The call is to repent of your sins and believe and receive the gospel by faith. Perhaps you do believe tonight, but you are facing resistance in a hostile and unbelieving world. Maybe like Nicodemus, you're surrounded by those who would speak and do evil concerning Christ. Know that he has placed you there. Know that he can use you there. But also know that those around you are dying for lack of living water. Pray and hope and be faithful to be a fount of living water, an instrument by which the Spirit brings the words of life to a weary world. May we all know and partake of this living water. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us, these words of life, these words of living water that come to us from the mouth of Christ and are made effectual in our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray that all here gathered tonight would have this living water, would know it, would be confident in it. And I pray also that we would be these streams of living water that go forth to the world that so desperately needs to hear your gospel, even as it renders false judgments and unbelief. I pray that 
we would be wise to take your gospel and that it would be made effectual in the lives of those we take it to. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.